there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're excited to be joined by Gabrielle Cerberville, aka Chaotic Forager. Gabrielle is a wild food educator, mycophagist, permaculturist, and interdisciplinary artist. Her entertaining educational videos on TikTok, where she shares her knowledge of edible plants and fungi, have been viewed by millions worldwide. She has lectured extensively on the importance of ecological awareness and land knowledge and believes that ethics and knowledge must go hand in hand to support a sustainable future. I'm excited to learn more about this dynamic personality who gets me even more stoked about foraging. Gabrielle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be really fun. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Well, it'll definitely be fun because you're here. You know, when I see you on TikTok, when I see you on social media, you're always high energy and fun and dynamic. So it was an honor to be able to have you uh, grace us on the show here. But I am curious, you know, now we see this media personality who has a lot of experience and a lot of, but what were the influences that got you out into nature? And then maybe kind of what put you on the path to where you are today? And I know the life story is extensive. So as many kind of snapshots or little overview you want to give us of how you got where you are today. For sure. Yeah. So I grew up in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. So I grew up 20 minutes away from anything that could be considered commercial, just barefoot in the forest. That was that was it. Me and my younger brothers running around, getting into trouble, uh, exploring. And uh, when I was really small, my first experience with wild food was actually blueberries. So blueberries grew all over the marshland that our home was situated nearby. And a neighbor pointed them out to me and said, hey, these are wild blueberries. You should try them. So I understood how to identify them and got really, really obsessed with just sort of trying to identify every stage of their development and making lists of where the best trees were, where the best trees were. And there were just so many things that went into my little five-year-old brain about like what I wanted to do um, and how I wanted to get to know this plant. And that's kind of the approach that I've always taken with getting to know uh, a new organism, you know, just trying to spend as much time with it as possible and do a lot of experimentation in, in that process and really trying to listen. And so because there wasn't much else to do when I was a kid, I was really like reading books and going outside. And that was my, that was my life. And as an adult, I, I moved to Indianapolis, uh, which I, no offense to Indianapolis, but I really hated living there. It was in the city. It was really hard for me to be away from, uh, to be away from like my sense of quietude that I had in the woods. And I had, I really, really struggled with that. So I had to find ways to get outside and it took me a long time to sort of like remember who I was. You know, we, we spent a lot of time in our 20s, like trying to figure out who we are anyway. But but so much of that comes down to remembering who we are, like what really drove us, what spoke to us as children. So I started spending more time out in the forest. And uh, that's when I discovered mushrooms. That was the critical moment of discovering the mushrooms. And I am always impressed how much you know about all kinds 
of organisms. You know, for me, I get blinders on about fungi, but you know so much about plants and make commentary about animals. So I guess was foraging your entree into that world of ecology, you know, you discovered your childhood self picking blueberries and that sent you kind of down the road of discovering more about ecosystems and kind of this broader understanding that you have now biological understanding. 100%. Yeah, the the more time that you spend with a forest thinking about it as this singular entity with a lot of moving parts, almost like almost like uh, opening up a watch and looking at how all of the pieces are fitting together. The more time you spend out in the forest, the more parts of that you're going to see and the more you're going to understand how it all clicks together so that it works as as this singular organism, uh, which I guess is sort of a deep ecology approach. But but that's the way that I've always that's the way that I've always understood uh, the natural world and how we fit into it. And I think that's why my interests are pretty broad and varied when it comes to the range of wild food that I am interested in imbibing in. Well, that's one of the funnest parts is realizing all the, I love that analogy of the watch, realizing all these different pieces and how they fit together. And once you kind of get a glimpse of that connection, there's so many more layers to unpack. But, you know, take us back then to that moment of discovering some of your first mushrooms. Is there like a seminal mushroom hunt, maybe a mushroom experience you have of eating one that made your eyes light up? And or, or what was that like falling in love with queendom fungi? Oh, man, um, that was a, a sort of a lengthy period of time. I, was, I had a lot of kind of rough stuff going on in my life uh, when I was 25. And uh, I would escape to the forested areas that I could find in Indianapolis. And one of them was this really great little pocket park called Holiday Park. And I was trail running there one day in the fall and I saw these huge clumps of mushrooms and I was like I've never seen anything like this before what the hell is that uh, <laughs> so I don't know what possessed me to take out my phone and snap some pictures but I really wanted to know what they were uh, and I joined a Facebook group because somebody had recommended doing that uh, after I posted some pictures on Instagram not really knowing what I was doing and some very nice, very respectable people on the Indiana Mushrooms Facebook group just answered my questions and they told me what my mushroom was. Somehow they were able to identify it, even though I didn't give them any upskirt photos. And I did the thing where, you know, you take a picture that's like seven feet away and kind of blurry because <laughs> I didn't know how to take a picture in the woods. And and somehow Derek Talkington, bless his soul, he figured out what I had and he said you should compare it with this. Uh, I think at the time it was Armillaria uh, tabacins, although that's been reclassified to Desarmillaria caspitosa now. So I took some home. I learned that you could touch them and it wouldn't hurt you. And I did a bunch of research. And when I finally felt comfortable that this this man on the internet wasn't lying to me, I decided I was going to cook some and just try like a bite and see how I felt. So I took a bite and then it was really tasty. And then an hour later I felt okay. So I had a couple more bites and then I was like, I'm going to go to bed. And if I die, then, <laughs> well, I wasn't having a very good year anyway, but I felt great in the morning. And I was like, wow, I can eat mushrooms. I, this is, this is a new revelation. So I started looking for mushrooms everywhere I went. 
And I guess for like six years now, I just have not stopped looking for mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, well, and you just kind of rolled out some of your obviously evolved taxonomical knowledge referencing scientific names and how they've changed. So, you know, as you went along that journey, were there any, I guess, keys to your development for myself and other am amateur foragers listening? Were there things you did, either processes you engaged in, particular resources, or maybe it was a group or, or a mentor, but anything that really kind of accelerated or strengthened that taxonomic knowledge? Because that's the superpower everyone I think once when they start discovering mushroom foraging. I mean, yes, you can eat what you find in the woods. Amazing. Mushrooms are incredible, crazy, but everyone wants to know what is this? That's the quintessential question. Can you tell what you have? So uh, like I said, obviously demonstrating your proficiency there. Uh, what were some of the things that you think helped you gain that fluency? I think that some of it was I did a lot of lurking in Facebook and Reddit groups and watched how people interacted with each other and how people answered questions. And if you're in a Facebook group for even a little while, it's very clear who the experienced identifiers are and who the people who don't really know what they're talking about but want to seem smart are. So you try to pay attention to the people who uh, are good identifiers who are consistent and who don't make wild leaps just to just to seem intelligent. Um, you start to recognize how people are answering a question like compare to and then giving you a binomial that you can look up yourself. So anytime as I'm looking through these posts that other people are making of their mushrooms, anytime I see one of those people that I'm like, ah, yes, I can trust this person. I would go and I would look up that binomial and I would compare it to the pictures that were there. And I would try to learn everything I could about that mushroom. And then I would go out and I would look for that mushroom in areas that seemed similar to where the original person found it. So I did a lot of work on my own uh, because I certainly felt pretty self-conscious about my lack of knowledge at that point, but I understood that there was a lot of knowledge to be had just from observing how experienced people did things. So you kind of soak it up like a sponge if you're really open to listening and, and occasionally being wrong and trying not to be dangerously wrong. Well, and that can also give you an idea of in those online environments, who's worth talking to or bouncing things off of. So becoming a lurker on a Facebook group or a message board is a great first step to start getting that information and identifying folks in your local area. Uh, I love that. And then I think I know the answer to this, but would you say now that you've kind of gotten all of this knowledge that you're like obviously wild food, gourmet, you love eating what you find, but you know, have you found yourself also researching unheralded mushrooms and just kind of an interest in everything at this point? Because I know that's kind of a bifurcation out there that more and more is is getting dispelled as I talk to people. It's like, no, most people are into the food and the science. Have you found that true for yourself? You're just kind of interested in all the fungi you're finding. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely, when I'm trying to make content, I'm focusing more on things you can eat or things that you very, very much should not eat. But <laughs> When I'm just out in the forest and I see a mushroom, um, I want to know what it is. I want to know that I'll be able to recognize it again when I see it again. Um, I do a lot of just like picking mushrooms and looking at them or 
my partner bought me a microscope last year for Christmas. And so I, that's been so much fun uh, to get to play with and get to uh, get even deeper into understanding some of those morphological characteristics that are not visible to the naked eye. Things like, like, you know, looking at the spores and looking at the shape of the spores. So that's been really cool. But I think that if you are going to be a, a forager who's really like with the times, you should care about the science. Because if you understand a little bit about uh, mycology, about mycological science uh, and about food science, then you're going to be a lot safer overall. Uh, you know, mm. for example, there are people who indiscriminately eat russula, but we know based on a series of studies that have been done on Eastern European people who indiscriminately eat russula but boil twice, that it can uh, it can actually damage your organs after a while. So you want to make sure that you're keeping up on the new science because so much of mycology is new science, and you want to make sure that you're continuing to evolve your practice and be more safe uh, as as you grow and as you learn. Yeah, I think that's great words of wisdom is that more comprehensive view of mycology and mycophagy and really kind of keeps you keeps you safer, even if your primary interest mm -hmm. is foraging for your belly. But then the obvious question that I like to ask folks who are so experienced in foraging, how many species have you eaten and what are the sleeper edible mushrooms? I mean, starting first of all with our malaria I think not a lot of people start there. I think people start with a morel or a porcini. <laughs> so I think you're already going off the beaten path a little bit. But uh, if you know, what is the ballpark of how many species you think you've eaten? And what are some ones you really enjoyed that don't get a lot of attention or you would have never thought of? Okay, this is an interesting question because I actually don't know. If I could go back, one of the things I would do is start keeping a list of all of the mushrooms that I've eaten. But it's it's certainly in excess of 100 and probably more than that. Um, there are a lot of edible mushrooms. If we're going species to species, yeah. um, you know, there are a number of things where like, you know, you've got a different subspecies or something. And I've had mushrooms from different parts of the country, too. So it's not like all mushrooms I've found in Michigan and Indiana and Pennsylvania. So uh, so there are a lot of different different things there. And as far as like sleeper mushrooms, there are a lot of really good ones. I will say that I think a genus that gets slept on a lot is Telopolis, which are bitter bolets, or often called bitter bolets, but not all of them are bitter. And some of them are really good. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of Telopolis albuator, which is mm. sometimes called the black velvet bolete. They are beautiful. They're these gorgeous, they have these sort of like soft, very dark, dark brown to black caps. And they taste almost like a slightly sweeter porcini. The trick is getting to them before the bugs do. But I will say, I think that people should care a little bit more about Telopolis and give it a little bit less shit because not every Telopolis is bitter. In fact, I should probably make t-shirts or something that just say like Belit Liquor because I'm always out there in the forest like slicing off the base of my mushroom and sticking it on my tongue because you can't judge a telopolis by its cover oh there's so many potential t-shirts in there put respect on telopolis <laughs> so elite liquor you just gave us a lot <laughs> a, a lot of great uh, uh meme ammunition there well and one of the i know one of the the mushrooms that i saw you kind of explode into our collective consciousness was the puffball calvatia 
talk about your relationship with the puffballs and maybe share with us, you know, some of the preferred ways of preparing or preserving. I don't know if you can preserve puffballs very well. I don't usually find enough to try out different preservation methods, but, but yeah, tell us about a little bit about your love story with puffball or let me know if I'm overblowing that. Okay. So puffballs, it, they've sort of become my signature mushroom, but I, that is not what I set out to do. Uh, the giant puffball, uh, we have Calvacia gigantea here, but we have a few other Calvacia species. I think on the West Coast, don't you have the, uh, you have a giant puffball, but it's the, the, um, the mosaic one. Oh, you have the Booniana. Yeah, yeah. You've got some cool puffballs, but we have these massive, uh, they're smooth, uh, they're gorgeous, these white puffballs. And I remember that I was, it was like 2020, I had kind of just started TikTok. Um, and TikTok was just like a silly place for me to make videos and try stuff out and like document places I was going to find to find new mushrooms because I just moved to Kalamazoo. And I'm walking down this path and I see this busted up puffball on the side of the path. And I'm like, damn it, somebody smashed one of these again. I always find them smashed. But I bet there are more in the forest because the the terrain was good. It was like open forest. There was some brush, but it wasn't too much. Uh, so I turned on my camera and I said, I just found these busted puffballs, but let's go into the forest and see if we can find some more. And I happened to find two very nice, very large ones. And I think that it is it's a few things about puffballs that have sort of like captured the public's interest. First of all, they look crazy. They don't look like yeah. something that should be real. They don't look like they should be growing out in the forest. They look like alien volleyballs. They look like there's something wrong with them. You you would you would probably stay away from them thinking that you're going to be part of like the alien versus predator franchise if you get too close. <laughs> alien volleyballs. But, I love it. Yeah, they're crazy looking, but, and they're so big. Uh, and so people, first of all, they don't believe that it's a mushroom. Uh, and second of all, they definitely don't believe you can eat it. So I made a video about this and people went nuts about it. They had no idea you could eat this. They were saying, oh my God, this is growing in my softball field. Oh my God, this is in my backyard. I've seen this in my woods. We always just kicked them. But then, you know, suddenly I had all these people who wanted to hear me talk about more mushrooms. <laughs> So as far as the cooking part of things, what I will say is that they are a very versatile hunk of protein, but they don't have a lot of flavor on their own. Um, right. They actually have like a lot of protein. You can, in fact, turn them into protein powder if you want to. They dehydrate pretty well. They're really good for sort of adding bulk to uh, mushroom spices, too because they have a nice flavor as long as they're really fresh you can dehydrate them grind them down and add them to like your porcini powder to stretch it or if you're a truffle lover you can throw a truffle in there and then you've got like just more truffle flavor which is cool but my favorite ways to make them are usually to make some sort of like a uh, puffball parmesan where you can just like bread it crust it toss it in a frying pan and then sauce whatever, whatever you want to put on it, cheese, uh, if you're a cheese eater. But last year I made, I, I spent a long time kind of perfecting my puffball pizza recipe because there are a lot of puffball pizza recipes out there and 85% of them don't work. Uh, mm. You just end up with like soggy, sad, sock tasting pizza. Oh, no. um, 
But what does work is slicing thick slices, dry frying them with a little bit of salt on both sides until they've reduced a fair bit, and then throwing them on a hot pizza stone in the oven with your toppings. That is the closest to pizza dough that I've been able to make them. So if you want to do the famous puffball pizza, that is the trick. You have to cook it, dry fry with salt, let it, the moisture out, and then stick them in the oven so that you don't end up with like soggy, wet pizza. That was the recipe I hope we teased out because when I saw that on your page, I was like, all right, next time I find a puffball, we have to do this. It's mandatory. <laughs> So thank you for sharing that. That That is one of those that just inspires yes. imagination and versatility. But then I'm sure for a lot of folks listening, I really appreciate that idea of like the powderized, extending some of your other powders. And there's probably someone listening who's like, oh, I'm going to make puffball protein powder. That's going to be the new thing. I appreciate you sharing kind of all those wonderful versatile ways to use our favorite Calvatia. And, you know, I'm always <laughs> curious too about that evolution. Uh, because we know that finding the mushrooms is like, I don't know, more and more. I'm thinking that's like 30%, 40% of the foraging experience. So much it comes down to the cooking and preservation. And admittedly, that is the area that I kind of have the least skills with. I'm like pizza, pasta, I'm pretty limited. So folks like yourself are doing these more out there preparations and really thinking about it. I mean, were you someone who was already interested in cooking, kind of had those skills already? Did you just get into it or talk about that evolution a little bit of how you expanded your culinary preparation and preservation techniques. Yeah. So I've always loved to cook. I love food. Um, my family is very like food centric. Uh, we're mm. Puerto Rican. Like we love food. There's always a lot of food around, but when I started working with wild ingredients, it became clear pretty quickly that you had to treat some of them differently because they're not just substitutes for things you can get in the grocery store. They're very much their own thing. And this idea of like substitutionary thinking with wild food, like it doesn't always work, you know? And then people will say that something is bad, but it's because they tried to treat it like something it wasn't. So I had to learn a few different techniques for working with different kinds of mushrooms. I really got into things like different types of fermentation, different ways of like drying certain types of mushrooms that do well dried finding the best way to prep a mushroom for the freezer can be something that varies mm. from species to species you know so you might not want to dehydrate your chanterelles because if you try to rehydrate them after that uh, the structure is just really ruined and the texture is bad uh, but you can dehydrate them and you can grind them into powder and throw them in soup and they're a nice thickener and a flavor additive. Um, I've also heard that freeze-dried chanterelles are really good, but for some reason, dehydrated ones, it just doesn't work. You know, some mushrooms do better if they're pickled over a long period of time. Some mushrooms do well if you do nothing to them and you just throw them in a bag and you throw that bag in the freezer and you pull it out whenever you need, whenever you need mushrooms. I've found that that is definitely the case for things like booty ribolitis frostii or a, a frost bleed. Mm. They do not like it if you add oil and then throw them in the freezer, they just disintegrate. So a lot of it is trial and error. 
And you have to be okay with a little bit of waste to find the balance and to find like what's going to work. Yeah, that's really interesting to just try putting them in the freezer like that. Uh, so giving us a little more inspiration to just try things out and see what works. I mean, God, that's probably a theme of this entire podcast. That's how we're learning more about mycology in general is people just trying things out and seeing what works. Why wouldn't that apply to foraging and wild food? And then most recently, has there been a recipe or a preparation just, you know, in recent memory that you've come across that's been like a, a revelation for you or one that you really like right now, you know, a certain mushroom with a certain preparation that you just find yourself going back to that you want to mention? Mm, man, there are a few. Heritage food is really important to me. Uh, making food that connects to my family's history, to my history, that's really meaningful. And I also, in my artistic practice, I work with food. I work with foraged food and sound. So I've been spending a lot of time doing these things that I call um, audio dinners or sound dinners, uh, mm. where I will create a huge foraged meal with multiple courses and create a track to go with each of those different courses, uh, which has been super fun. I've done a couple of them so far. I just finished one up at United Plant Savers a couple weeks ago, actually one week ago. But yeah, it's been really fun. But while I was out there, I did a lot of that experimentation. And one of the recipes that I've been kind of tweaking and trying to perfect over time is actually one of my grandmother's recipes, which is her arroz con pollo. And I use chicken of the woods instead. And so I have to treat it differently than I would treat like chicken legs or something like that. You can't add oil at the beginning. You have to work a little bit differently with some of the spices, but it comes out tasting really fantastic. And it has a very different kind of feeling because it is food that is was at one point foreign and now isn't because it's using ingredients that come from where I live. So it's a nice way to kind of pull together these different parts of my own identity. And to be able to share that with people is really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually one of the questions I had, which was how this whole experience you, you've you gone on, and I definitely want to talk about that social media explosion, but that experience you've gone on in your relationship that's developed with Wild Foods, and you even mentioned you know having a rough spot in your 20s, which I think everyone can relate to. But that idea that this has somehow helped you reconcile parts of yourself and parts of your heritage, I was curious about that. And it sounds like that's definitely, you know, that's definitely the case that this process has helped you, yeah, rediscover yourself, but also reconcile all these different parts of yourself and maybe find some more affirmation and, and maybe self-love along the way. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's an experience that's unique to me either. I think that most people, when they connect with the place that they live, they find a uh, a deeper sense of grounding and of uh, community within that. Yeah, and I think that's really well said. But tell us about Kalamazoo then, because now you're in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, we were saying before the podcast, like more than a funny name, it's a real place. Uh, so tell us about Kalamazoo, the the habitat the forage landscape. It sounds like this is kind of a recent move just in the past couple of years. Yeah, I moved here in 2020 during the uh, beginning part of the pandemic and uh, everything was closed down, of course, as it 
needed to be. And it was high summer, you know, it's middle of July. I had a lot of uh, this, this would be the time where I would really start gathering things in mass to prepare for winter and all my spots were back in Indiana. So I needed to find new spots and Kalamazoo is a marvelous place to be a forager. Uh, mm. So much of what is here, what has been planted as ornamentals, so much of the diversity of landscapes, uh, it just really lends itself to a lot of different food. Uh, we're at this really nice area where we get a lot of the stuff from just south of us, but we also get some of that like great northern, that great northern biodiversity. So our mushroom game out here under normal circumstances is usually fantastic. I, I can go out and just like be tripping over bleats this time of year most of the time. But, you know, but this year it's been really dry uh, and it, it's a little heartbreaking to see some of the effects of climate change really taking hold and uh, not just hurting the the direct ecology, the plants and the animals and the, and the fungi, but also how it affects the population of people who live here. We have a large unhoused population here in Kalamazoo, and it's really hard to see them constantly getting pushed into different areas. Uh, and then those areas end up under stress because people should be living in, in homes. <laughs> and uh, so Kalamazoo is, uh, is a beautiful place, and it's also an enigma in many ways mm. well i can relate to that a lot just in my experience out here in northern california i think we find some similar dynamics and of course the thing about environmental changes is they're cumulative so we won't really see the impact you know immediately i mean we are seeing an impact pretty fast but over the years we're only going to see that snowball and change mm -hmm. uh, but aside from mushrooms i know you post a lot about wild plants and what are you discovering about the flora uh, the flora there in Kalamazoo, is it rife with edible plants, medicinal plants? What has that practice been like there in Michigan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've got all kinds of things. Uh, my partner and I actually really love looking for orchids in spring. So mm. Michigan has approximately 51 native species of orchids. Some of them are very difficult to find or haven't been found in several years. In fact, he and I managed to document one that had not been documented in about five or six years last year. And then we found one this year that I think had been eight or nine years since the last documented sighting. So Whoa. he's really good at at really like researching where things are probably going to be. And then once we get to a place, I can read the place. I can tell you, oh, we'll probably find this over here. We might find that over there. If we go a little bit further over that ridge and we go down, I bet there are going to be chanterelles there. And I'm usually right. But when it comes to looking at Google Earth and figuring out what's happening, no idea whatsoever. So um, <laughs> he's definitely the analyst in the situation. And I'm more the, uh, the boots on the ground, like get me there and I can find the stuff. <laughs> What a dynamic duo. You have your eyes in the sky technology person, and then you're there to sniff it out once you get on the ground. I, and I was going to ask that yeah. about your partner, and it sounds like he has very much been brought into the foraging world and you know, inoculated, whatever you want to call it. It sounds like that is very much the case. Partner in crime. 
Well, it's it's nice because he was already into it. So I can't be blamed for the amount of time that he spends out in the forest or <laughs> that he spends on his hands and knees, like photographing a glia forest in the cemeteries or any of that. Like that's all on him. Uh, I can't be blamed. So <laughs> you weren't a fairy that lulled him out into the forest. He was already there. Uh, well, and He's then already there. <laughs> talk, talk to us of them about the experience of becoming a kind of pillar in foraging social media. You know, you talked a little bit about just going on TikTok. It was goofy, whatever. But when you did get traction and that expansion, you know, it's hard to characterize kind of a, a rocket ship like that. But what has that experience been like, especially because foraging mushrooms in general have for so long been something ignored or overlooked? You know, it's been interesting. I think one of the harder things about it has been when you do this kind of work, you are subject to a tremendous amount of criticism and scrutiny. So the moment that you misspeak, uh, even if it's very benign and it's very obvious what you were trying to say, um, people will jump down your throat. Um, I'm constantly being compared to other people who are in the foraging space, even if it's not like we're not occupying the same space, just because foraging isn't like a super high visibility niche to be in. And so there aren't as many of us to compare to one another. Most of us, I would say, are are good friends and on good terms with each other. And we we share tips and tricks. We, you know, we get excited about what people in our community are doing but there are definitely there are definitely moments that feel like you are you're kind of between a rock and a hard place you know you want to educate people and you want to demonstrate how exciting it is to live with nature in this way um you know to live with the land not just on it and it's difficult to educate in that space sometimes because of all of the misconceptions and um, all the loyalties that you know one person may feel to one forager, um, not realizing that like most of us get along and we like each other and we support each other and we're all in different places and you know finding different things, we're finding them at different times and we all learn from each other so. The nice thing is that almost nobody has ever recognized me outside of social media. So I really do get to just live my life and, you know, walk around in public and nobody knows who I am, uh, which is great. But yeah, it's it's been interesting to sort of be skyrocketed into this position where people assume that you are an authority on everything right. just because you have a platform where you do educate it's a hard place to learn sometimes, you know, when I was starting out, you know, if you ask the wrong question or you ask what somebody deems a, a stupid question, uh, you're, you're very liable to not just be laughed at, but to be abused. And uh, it can make it hard to learn because you're having to deal with other people mocking or trying to embarrass you which is why I lurked. I could see other people getting mocked for questions that I wanted to ask. Um, so I just try to be as uh, gracious and friendly as I can and to answer questions over and over if I need to, as long as I can tell that they're being asked in good faith. But but yeah, it's it's uncharted territory in some ways. Yeah, it feels like just over the past couple of years, there has been this uncharted territory 
of people emerging and getting visibility as a forager or a wild food person. And I think you hit it on the head with everyone expects you to be an authority or an expert. And I would imagine, you know, you talked about that spectrum of being hard to learn because this is kind of this arcane thing people are very protective of. But then as you get more visibility, it kind of gets more so because then people don't want to share. They want to mock you even more. Oh, you have this platform that you've developed just by sharing your authentic self and you don't know X, Y, Z. Well, now it's like even more of an indictment of who you are when... Mm -hmm. You know, when I watch someone like I watch your content or any of the folks who are big on TikTok or Instagram and foraging, I hope people see it more of a, as a call to action because I feel like you're trying to pull people out into the woods to share stuff, get involved. It's not like, look at me and how great I am. That's I think I, I hope for folks who are more viewing this kind of content. I like to think that folks posting about foraging and wild food is more of an invitation to, hey, come post. Look at stuff. I'm always impressed by yourself, you know, whether it's Gordon fascinated by fungi or all these folks are leaving comments on like accounts that just started of people just posting stuff. And it's like, no, we're, we're trying to, this is what it feels like to me. Like we're trying to bring you on the team, not act like we're part of this exclusive club. Yeah. And it's not, it's not this exclusive club or it doesn't have to be, uh, at least yeah. I've found on TikTok, like we are not an exclusive club. Like uh, there are people that I consider like far more authoritative than me that have 400 followers and maybe just like, don't quite know how to make the content that gets the views, but like, that doesn't matter. You know, things and you can share things and that's great. You know, there are people who have a lot more followers than I do that make a lot of mistakes in their in their content that are sometimes kind of dangerous and you you've just gotta you've just gotta be open to people uh practicing foraging it, it is a practice uh yeah. it's not an opportunity to just show off all the time uh, i am always learning i am always trying to pick up new skills i've learned about several new plants and several new mushrooms this year because you're never done learning. You you are, I'm demonstrating a practice of being with nature in my TikToks. And I I sometimes get details wrong. Uh, for example, I, I made a video earlier this year about May apples. And I said, you cannot uh, ripen them on your countertop. It doesn't work because the methods that I tried had never worked. And then mm. I had a couple of people in my comments go, try this, this works. And I did. And now I get to eat May apples because I learned something new. We're always doing that all the time. Uh, you know, we're always learning about new plants, learning about new mushrooms, uh, learning about new ideas of how you should how you should harvest things. Uh, you know, there's just there's always so much to go on. It's kind of like medicine. You know, it's it is a practice. It is something that you have to continue to do and you have to continue to learn about and you're never done learning. It's it's an art. It's a practice. Well, and actually what I just thought of in hearing you talk about that example is not taking it too badly to heart. If you share something and someone corrects something in what you're posting, like, no, that's part maybe of this feedback loop of this community is that in, enables you to learn. Then who knows? You can make a video even talking about it. Like, look what I learned. But then on the other side, also for people who want to point out things or feel like someone got something wrong, you know, maybe do it with compassion or sometimes I do it with a question mark, right? Like, isn't this da da da? And, and you ask it instead of being like, rah, 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 and being angry and trying to prove how right you are. 
Yeah, there's definitely an etiquette to it. And not everybody has that etiquette. Um, you know, I certainly think like if you have a relationship with the person you're trying to correct, maybe your mutuals or you have their email, maybe shoot them an email. Maybe don't blow up their comment section because that can be a little rude. And then that person can credit you in their correction. Uh, you know, there are there are so many more polite ways of, uh, of going about it than just info dumping in somebody's comment section. <laughs> and wearing that as a badge of honor, uh, keyboard commando. Well, you said something interesting before the show, which was TikTok is less about social media and it's more of entertainment media. Talk about that distinction and or what it means to post and share in that context. What does that mean? Yeah, sure. So if I make a post on Facebook, my audience is people that I know, hopefully, even a little bit, people that I have some sort of connection with. Right. You know, if I make a post about like something cute my cat did, it's for my family, it's for my like extended relatives, some friends who know that cat. And you know, they're maybe going to like that, but it's because of the relationship that they have with me, not because that content is necessarily like stellar on its own. Uh, but when you get over to TikTok, uh, you are building, you're not building a social network, you're building an audience. And hopefully it's an audience that wants to keep watching what you make. But there is really no good way for that relationship to be reciprocated unless you unless they make content that you also like to consume and you become mutual somehow. Um, but even that can feel very parasocial. So I have absolutely made friends through TikTok. I mean, I never would have gotten to know Gordon if it wasn't through TikTok or uh, or the Wondersmith or any of these other wonderful foragers that I have developed friendships with. But but I'm not making content for I'm not making content for those people necessarily. I'm making content for a broader audience to hopefully get more people to watch the video. Um, so in that sense, you do you, you're not putting on a personality, but you are emphasizing who you are and you're emphasizing characteristics that make you stand out and seem watchable so that mm. people will watch your movie and your your watch your little movie and your audience will grow. So I think that it's really about like what's the intent of what you're putting out there. You know, there's enough garbage on TikTok with people making these videos that are dangerous or um or just inconsequential. But when it comes to educational content, you have to make you have to make that content, you have to make it entertaining. Otherwise, people won't want to watch it. You know, people don't want to look at a whole screen of text for a minute. They want to see right. somebody doing something. They want to feel like they're there. You're you're kind of having to think about it, like you're making a little a little low budge TV show for people. That's what it feels like. Because I've watched the evolution where pioneers like the folks you mentioned and yourself have kind of made it where it almost, I mean, it, it, there's production that goes in. You can see it and you can feel it, the right amount of kind of dynamism, but then information. And, you know, for me, it was part of something I was like, whoa, this is a whole world. This is a whole set of skills that I will have to upgrade. And I kind of burrowed deeper into the podcast, but I, I'm still keeping a, a pin there that we might return to kind of do more videos and learn from you guys and try to do some more videos like that. You know, for folks making videos, is there like certain equipment you recommend? 
certain this is part of partly a selfish question but equipment style anything like that that you found a lot of success with and in, in kind of getting traction you know, people talk a lot about like the equipment you need and everything. And I just, I don't think that that's what makes a video work. I think that yeah. certainly learning a few editing tricks, uh, even something just like cutting your silences, filming off the platform so that you have more control over what you can do. Um, it's a lot easier to use like some super cheap or free editing software. I mean, if you have an iPhone, you have clips, it's already there. You can do so much with it. You can do a lot of fun little editing things. You can um, switch up your shots more. You can you can do more, but but you don't need fancy equipment to make a good TikTok because TikTok is not about production value. TikTok is hmm. simply about entertainment, feeling that sense of connection with the person who's giving you that information. Some of the most successful TikTokers are people who lay in their bed with a phone six inches away from their face, just talking at a camera um, because you feel like you're in somebody's house. That's part of why the um, orientation is portrait and not landscape. You feel like you're FaceTiming with people. You feel like you're in their living room. Uh, that's what works about the platform. It feels more authentic. So adding more production value sometimes with that platform is just layer adding layers of inauthenticity or at least what your audience is perceiving as inauthenticity. Wow, that's a great point. So if you go too far on the production scale, people might say, oh, they, that authenticity that I love isn't there. I'm not FaceTiming you anymore. I'm I'm talking to the nightly news. Well, that's really interesting. And then from kind of that mental health angle, again, kind of a selfish question. I end up tuning out of social media a lot now because I can't help like comparing myself to everyone. And the second there are numbers involved, I get incredibly neurotic about it. So how do you manage that? Is it not really an issue? Is it or any practices you engage in to help you kind of manage your your mental and emotional health around the power that is these platforms? Yeah, I try to keep my consumption of social media as low as possible. Uh, it's also mm. part of why I film off the app. Um, I have all of my notifications turned off, turned off for every platform because, frankly, I don't get paid to do this, and I don't need it invading my life outside of business hours. <laughs> it is too much for my mental health. It is too much strain on. Uh, my relationships, and I need to be able to engage with it on my own time. So if that means that a comment waits for a while, then the comment waits for a while. If it means mm -hmm. that I don't get to the 65 DMs that I just got asking me, what is this mushroom with a picture that's seven feet away and super blurry, then I don't get to that DM. That is just simply how it is. And does that make me the best at social media? No, it makes me kind of terrible at it. But uh, it does mean that I burn out less. And right. I can't, I can't do it all the time. If I do it all the time, then I won't be able to do it anymore. That's a great point. Because part of me when you're saying that triggers my FOMO of like, what, what if you miss something? Or what if you and you're kind of taking the approach of look, the most important thing is to create. So I need to manage my attention and my kind of bandwidth to be able to keep creating without yeah. getting burnt out. I think that's fantastic advice. And you really don't. A lot of people will say, oh, you need to make three videos a day. No, you don't. Sometimes I make <laughs> one video a week. Sometimes I make one video every two weeks. 
just focus on making the content you want to make and don't don't worry about just putting bullshit out there because you think that you need to keep your channel moving right it's not important make the stuff you want to make and when your face comes on that screen and you're making content that's authentic that's exciting to you people will want to watch it because they haven't grown to they haven't grown accustomed to seeing bullshit content from you yeah i i think that's i think that's fantastic advice and then do you also kind of set aside i don't know your concepts of like growth or i need to match a certain pace basically would you like to create this content no matter if you had five followers or if you had five million have you gotten kind of comfortable in that space yeah i mean i do like creating content for people so i like it when people watch and engage with my content I like when I can see the culture of the comments changing over time because my audience is learning. Uh, mm. That is incredibly valuable to me. So would I put this much into it if I had five followers? Of course not. I have other things that I should be doing in that case. It wouldn't be a wise thing to spend all of my time on. But because of how I've been able to grow this channel and I've been able to do certain things to make sure that I don't starve while I do it, I am able to pour myself into it to some degree. And because it is, it is authentic content. It is what I love most in the world, getting to be outside and teach people about nature and connect that to my own creative soul. Done. Awesome. Let me do it forever. Right. This fits right in with who you are already, no change is needed. I guess outside of social media and foraging, you mentioned you do a lot with music. Talk about some of the artwork you've been producing because there are kind of snippets have emerged on your pages of like you, it's not ASMR, but it's like your voice speaking about ecology over some very kind of subtle music. So talk about the life outside of that kind of what's some of the art you're pouring your attention into and some other things that you're creating? Yeah, so I actually just finished my master's degree in music composition at Western Michigan University. So people are like, oh, where'd you get your mycology degree? And I'm like, I didn't, but <laughs> I do have a master's degree in music if that uh, lends any credibility to my platform. So I really focused on intermedia art, uh, interdisciplinary art. I call what I do creative alchemy because I like to pull uh, different things together and try to recreate them or reform them into uh, a new art or a new way of looking at art. So I really like focusing on the intersections between nature and sound, uh, nature and food, uh, visual art and different ways that music can be can be expressed visually. So a lot of my recent work is installation or it is graphic scores. Yeah, because I could tell there was not longer form, but yeah, kind of a more thoroughly produced kind of artistic creation you had going on behind the scenes. And you do talk about it on your page. And I think we're mutual, so I might get some inside intel there but i i was really curious about that so there's kind of this whole creative musical blossoming side going on there as well and the question that i forgot to ask before um, about this social media landscape this big social media landscape where foraging and mushrooms are like firmly in the mainstream now i think 
what are some changes you have seen that show you how much of an impact this space is making? You know, I guess it might be something like a big magazine has reached out to you or you mentioned something about foraging to someone who might not know who you are and they already know about it. Have you seen little cues that show like, wow, what I'm doing, what other creators are doing are kind of moving this culture forward in a way? Yeah, so something that I alluded to earlier was that I've noticed the culture in my comment section and in other comment sections of other mushroom people is changing. So mm. uh, you, you're probably very familiar with the sheer amount of uh, mycophobic misinformation that just gets thrown around in everyday conversation if the topic of mushrooms comes up. So I do my best to dispel as much of that as possible. You know, people talk about, well, oh, I saw this brightly colored mushroom, it must be poisonous. Well, mushrooms don't really exhibit aposematism. So you can't use color as an indicator for toxicity. You know, I I just yesterday I filmed a video of uh, the extremely toxic Amanita bisphorogyra and was holding the mushroom the whole time because it's okay to touch mushrooms, even if they're super toxic, they can't hurt you unless you eat them. And there were definitely people in the comments who were like, put it down, don't touch it, it's poison. And then I noticed that other commenters were coming in and repeating things that I've said in other videos about how it's okay to touch mushrooms. And so noticing that other people are coming in and correcting the misinformation tells me that the culture that cares about this is learning and that they're evolving and growing. And that has been really cool to see. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, just outside of mushrooms, we're already seeing this big push to ditch lawns and plant things that matter to pollinators, plant stuff that is going to provide habitat for wildlife. We're already talking about, you know, ways to conserve water. I know that that's a huge topic on the West Coast, uh, but here in the Midwest, it's also something that we're starting to talk about, you know, planting drought resistant species. We're talking about improving the way that we do controlled burns. And I think that all of that is really connected to us recognizing that the white supremacist colonizer complex has really destroyed a huge amount of biodiversity. And while maybe the effects of that weren't felt as deeply 50, 60, 70 years ago, we are seeing the writing on the wall. Uh, and many people have seen the writing on the wall for much, much longer. And so we're having to take into account that always thinking of ourselves first is not the best solution, not even for us. Because if we, if we don't consider the needs of the ecosystem that we live in, we're going to burn too. Powerfully said. And I think if we can see the needle moving back from that mechanistic domineering way of treating nature, that we we might just save ourselves and just recently um inspired by another author i was reading the work of jacob or jacob von uxall who talks about you know being able to see the the limitations of human perception and how we understand other species uh namely things like we're a highly visual species where so many other organisms don't transmit information that way so we're missing so much just how we move through the world and i think you know, those kind of, that kind of information, that kind of mindset, 
I, I can't always tell whether folks like you, folks like me in the media talking about these things or in kind of the public sphere talking about these things are a symptom or a driver of that type of consciousness. I think either way, it's being at the front lines. And I see the folks on TikTok who are doing this work. Again, you could say, well, mushrooms are getting big, so they're getting popular. Or are you guys driving more of that conversation you know, in unity with everyone else who loves and works with these organisms. Um, so it's, it is a beautiful thing to see. And yeah, if we can start battling back some of that damage that's been done over centuries, it will probably start with, with just the consciousness of it and this kind of understanding. Yeah. I mean, I'm 30 years old. I'm turning 31 this year. And I, in my life have lived through multiple ecological disasters and have heard of more ecological disasters that occurred just before I was born. People my age, I assume your age, are are no stranger to watching the world burn around us. Um, and I think the difference is that we want to do something about it. We don't want to leave behind a world that is burning. We don't want to leave behind a world where we kill keystone species and where there are no green spaces that can support life. We can care about that. Uh, and I think that we are starting to recognize that the first step is giving enough of a shit about everything that lives here that we're willing to set aside the things that might make us money or the things that might make life more convenient for us in order to care about those things. And I'm even seeing it start to show up at very local grassroots levels. I'm really involved in my city council and kind of the city politics where I live. I'm actually on a couple of commissions here. And I, I mean, I'm the one who's always talking about fungi or mushrooms at meetings where no one thinks they have any business of being brought up, but I'm not the only voice. And there are other people that want to see this understanding integrated into more and more of, you know, general plans for cities and the just these narrative tools, right? So many of these like documents, these are just narrative tools that we use to help us kind of navigate and collectively organize. And the more we integrate that viewpoint you're talking about, if this isn't just for us, I hope we start to, I hope we start to see those changes. Well, you know, in that vein, thinking broadly and thinking, you know, big, big picture, What's the future for you? I mean, do you have any future master plan? Are we going to see a chaotic forager books, uh, Nat Geo shows? It doesn't have to be that grand, but just what, what are the future plans, things you're interested in that you want to pursue? Yeah, I mean, there are things in the pipeline. Most of them I can't really talk about just yet, Ooh, the but best kind. There, are some, there are some fun things that will be coming out in the next month or two. Uh, I am working on... A book proposal but that doesn't mean anything uh so i have an agent who wants me to write something so i have to do it she's like i i think you have a book in you and i'm like i think that i have yesterday's mac and cheese in me but sure keep seeing that book <laughs> yeah so i'm working on stuff like that i'm really enjoying getting to speak at libraries and at like botanical societies and mycological societies it's really my bread and butter uh, because I just like talking with people, um, doing some plant walks here and there, but mostly I'm just uh, I'm just trying to 
really focus on figuring out what I want to do with this next year and trying to take opportunities as they come. Well, you've got a lot of amazing tools and ideas and things to pursue. So I'm excited to follow it all. And where is the best place? I mean, obviously Chaotic Forager. If you search that, you're going to find Gabriel. But a website, anything else you want to mention where people can engage and follow you? Sure. Yeah. If you're interested in any of the art stuff that I do, you can just go to gabrielleserverville.com. Um, and if you want to reach out and ask me a question, um, you can always contact chaoticforager at gmail. Fantastic. And I will have all of that, of course, linked up in the podcast notes. But yes, I highly encourage people, if you're listening to this, who probably already follow Gabrielle, but go follow her work. Go check out the music work. I think I think there's a lot there. I'm excited to see how that comes through because we're seeing more and more mushroom music. And I think you've definitely got the musical chops to bring through something amazing on that front. One would um, hope. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll round things up then with the three questions I like to ask all my guests. You've already given us so much, but I'm sure you're going to have some awesome answers here too. Uh, and the first one is a mushroom you love and why? And this could be edible, you know, visual, whatever you love about it. And it does not have to be a favorite, but a mushroom or fungus that you love and why? Ooh, good question. I am going to say, I'm just going to give you my favorite mushroom because because it's even better to mind but this is very basic of of me it's very basic of somebody who's eaten like over a hundred edible mushrooms and some things that probably aren't edible uh but i really like a good chanterelle what can i say they're delicious i like something that works in a sweet or a savory context they're finicky and they're one of the first like spring mushrooms spring summer mushrooms that you find and when you find them it's just like you've found gold. So that is, that is a favorite for me. We'll that alone is one of my, the humble chanterelle. <laughs> that alone, the fact that when you find them, they're these beautiful, bright golden things in the duff that alone makes them one of my favorite as well. So you can't go wrong with chanterelle. Uh, and then more broadly, we've touched on it throughout, but what is this relationship you've developed with fungi given to you? This can be lessons. This can be, connections new spiritual understandings but this deep relationship you've developed with these organisms and i mean heck you could even expand that to wild flora you know plants as well what has that relationship you've developed with these more than human organisms given to you i think that what it has impressed on me is that is the equal importance of everything in an ecosystem no matter how small or no matter how uh, how seemingly inconsequential you know, forests don't function without mycorrhizal networks. Trees aren't healthy without mycorrhizal networks. Forests that don't have underbrush don't support small mammals. Forests that are built of all one type of tree typically don't support life well. Forests that don't have flora are not going to support pollinators. And it's just so important that all of these things click together. But it's also really important to know our role because we are part of nature. We are not some bystander that just makes decisions about nature. Like we're affected by things and we affect things. 
And mm. we really need to remember our role as stewards. And I'm reminded of that every time I go out and I gather something. Um, I'm reminded that I am not more important than the bird that also eats these berries. I am not more important than the tree that my food is coming from. Um, I am not more important than the needs of the entire ecosystem. And because of that, there's this sense of mutual respect that we have to have for one another. And that's why so many indigenous traditions really impress upon you the very wise value of asking before you take something and of leaving something for others and interacting with the plant and animal and fungal nations in ways that are respectful so mm. that we can all continue to help one another and coexist. It's a beautiful lesson to be imparted by these organisms. And, you know, you hit something there very important, our role as stewards. You know, I think that's what the quintessential question, what is the meaning of why we're here? And for me, and for so many people I know who develop these relationships with other organisms, it becomes obvious. Our, our role here is to steward this place for these us and these other organisms that live here. And I think on the flip side of kind of learning that respect and learning we're not more important than other organisms, I like to also take solace in kind of understanding we're not just viruses on the planet either. That no, at our highest aspirations, we can actually, we can enhance ecosystems. We can be a regenerative agent in some of these natural spaces. Absolutely. It is such a cop-out to say that humans are a plague on the planet. We have a place here. We need to do a better job, but we can because we have sentience. We can make choices. We can undo evils that we've done. We can undo evils that our ancestors have done. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we also are a host to a swarm ecologies of all kinds of viruses and bacteria, fungi within our own bodies. So, you know, we, we are these agents, these communities of change that we can impart into the world. So that, that's that's really exciting. Well, normally my last question is another huge broad scope question, but I think we've kind of nailed it. So I'll just actually ask, because you are someone who enjoys a good book, what books have you been reading? What's been particularly potent oh, recently, a book that, you've, that you're loving? Oh, this is a good question. I recently started reading this book called Lab Girl, which is a personal account of a scientist who uh, studies trees. And it's mm. a really beautifully written book. I haven't gotten terribly far in it, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, I also recently got a uh, sort of the comprehensive text on beliefs because belief identification is crazy. It's so much fun. There's so much more that goes into it than just like looking at the immediately apparent visual characteristics or the mycorrhizal relationships. You have to like do timed tests and there's, it's so much fun to play with beliefs and to figure out what one is based on its morphological characteristics and all of these different things that you have to do. So I've been really enjoying that. Aside from that, I've, I'm always like, I'm always reading Braiding Sweetgrass because it's <laughs> like a huge comfort book for me, especially I like listening to uh, Dr. Kimmerer read it to me because she has the loveliest, most enjoyable author presence. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what's been on my book list recently. Pretty comprehensive. And I think uh, for everybody added a couple to our need to read list. Uh, and for me, I will say it's been 
that book, uh, Jacob von Oakshall. He was this German scientist, and he has a bunch of books translated to English. And I think he was writing in the late 1800s about this, about how we are limited by our own biological perception of the world as human organisms. And as I understand it, his German to English translations in those days were like super lame and missed the point. But more recently, they've re-released the one I'm reading now is a foray into the worlds of plants and animals. Uh, and he has a bunch of books, so so I'm excited for that one. But yeah, Gabrielle, thank you so much That's for- Gabrielle, actually. Gabri oh my God. Gabrielle. See, I'm so neurotic. <laughs> I'm going to go back and edit all of it. Uh, but Gabrielle, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the Mushroom Hour podcast. Thank you for sharing your insights with us and, and your insights even more than just all of your knowledge about plants and mushrooms, but you know your story and your journey and your history and- pioneering this crazy world of social media that we're all still trying to understand. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to get to speak with you.